This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to After the Buzzer. I'm Bob Wallace, coming from the chair of the Sports Law Practice of Thompson Coburn, coming from our firm headquarter office in St. Louis. And thanks for joining us for another episode of our podcast. The pandemic has affected everyone, every business, and most normal activity, including our sports world. Games have been rescheduled, and seasons and games even canceled. However, it looks like we are coming out from this pandemic, and we are looking forward to a return to more normal times. Colleges and their athletic programs have been right in the middle and greatly affected by this changed behavior. Our guest today is Tom McMillan, President and CEO of Lead One, an organization comprising 130 of the premier athletic programs representing over $8 billion in revenue and represented by their athletic directors. However, Tom is no stranger, either as an athlete or a well-known public figure, as Tom was an Olympian, Rhodes Scholar, professional basketball player, United States congressman, and author and businessman. He's a graduate of the University of Maryland, where he went to play basketball after receiving acclaim from Sports Illustrated as the best player in high school. After a successful career, he was first a Rhodes Scholar, a 1972 Olympic team member, before becoming an 11-year NBA player. Post-basketball, he served three terms in the U.S. House of Representatives, and was co-chair of the President's Council on Fitness and Sports. He has served on a board of regents of the University of Maryland, alma mater, and is the author of Out of Bounds, a book which examines conflicts between sports and ethics. Tom is now immersed in challenges in the changing landscape of college athletics. It was a great pleasure that I introduced Tom McMillan. Tom, should I refer to you as Congressman or just Tom? Oh, please call me Tom. That's fine. Tom, I, I, I mentioned your book, Out of, Out of Bounds, and I felt like a, a real reporter here because uh, I, I read the book over the last few days. Uh, I found it very interesting. And it sort of goes, at the beginning of the book, you talk about uh, your career as a student athlete, being recruited, NBA. Uh, tell us a little bit about your beginnings. Well, I grew up in a very small town, uh, obviously uh, in Nashville, Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, my family was very much into basketball. My brother was a great player. He went on to Maryland and played. At, at the time, he was Maryland's uh, first or second highest scorer. And uh, so I, I think a lot of my recruiting uh, was kind of crystallized by his success, my brother's success. And so they looked at the younger brother and said, wow, and uh, so I had this enormous recruiting uh, experience that I went through where literally every school in America was pounding on my door. And, of course, that was compounded by being on the cover of Sports Illustrated. So, you know, I, I went to uh, the University of Maryland. Uh, it was a very difficult decision. Originally, I committed to Carolina. Um, but I went to Maryland for a number of reasons. One was my father was not in great health, and he wanted to see me play, so it was closer to my home. Secondly, I wanted to be near Washington. I had been appointed as the youngest presidential appointee ever at 17 years old to a president's council on physical fitness. Uh, I still am, I think, the youngest presidential appointee ever. And that was kind of fun, uh, being around the White House and you know working with you know the, the president, uh, his staff, and everything else. And uh, and then, of course, going to Maryland was an, an, an opportunity to take a program that really had never succeeded uh, to any great extent and to really help put it on the map. And so all those three things were really pivotal in my uh, choice to go to school. And, you know, just being around our nation's capital, remember all this occurred sort of pre-Watergate. There was just a lot of stuff going on, the Cold War, uh, it was just uh, a very turbulent period in American history. So it was, it was neat to be near our nation's capital. How did you, at 17, become a member of the President's Council? 
Well, what happened was I was on the cover sports Illustrated, second athlete, second high school athlete ever. And I guess the White House saw it. You know, we talked we, in the article, there were a couple of comments politically, uh, you know, that uh, that uh, people, they thought, you know, I was kind of an interesting young man. And so the White House personnel office called me, and that's how it happened. So I, you know, it's pretty, pretty heady stuff. Who was the president then? President Nixon. President Nixon? President. Okay. Well, how, how was it when yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, well, the irony of it was now I served as a council member under President Nixon, but I co-chaired the President's Council under President Clinton. So I had quite a span with that agency. And um, anyway, that was that was sort of my uh, high school experience, high school and college experience. When you got a phone call from the White House, well, I mean, what was your reaction as a 17-year-old? You know, it's it's it was pretty pretty surreal. I do remember, though, you know, uh, Maryland was going through enormous riots because of the Vietnam War. I remember my freshman year, uh, there was uh, tear gas on the campus and National Guard. It was, it was pretty uh, pretty crazy. And uh, I had a speech teacher who um, didn't like the fact that I was on the cover of the Washington Post with President meeting President Nixon. And I think she gave me my only B my freshman year in speech. And uh, and so uh, although it was, it was nice to be on a presidential commission, President Nixon was not very popular on co college campuses. After your, your successful college career, and, and you mentioned in the book that Bill Bradley was one of your heroes who was uh, sort of role models, uh, you had a chance, obviously, after a very successful college career to be a, a high NBA draft choice, and you decided to take a road scholarship and said, what, what went into that decision? The University of Maryland had never had a road scholar, uh, and it's obviously the, the, most, the oldest and most prestigious scholarship in the world. Uh, I had gotten to know Bill Bradley, who had won a road scholar, and, you know, I thought it was... Uh, pretty interesting what he did. He went over and played uh, in Italy while he was uh, accepting the Rhodes Scholarship. He did that for two years and didn't come back to the NBA to after that. It's just amazing how small world it is. I was drafted by the Buffalo Braves, and the owner of the Buffalo Braves was from my hometown of Mansfield, Pennsylvania. He made his money in Buffalo, and he drafted me, and he was happy to have me wait a year. Uh, I took the roads. Uh, originally, I was going to stay there two years, uh, but I ended up coming back uh, after one year. I played in Italy. I played 50-some games in Italy. I came back after one year, and then I finished my road scholarship in three summer terms. So as soon as the NBA season was over, I would get on a plane and go to Oxford and spend a month or two there taking the finishing up the three terms that I had to do for the second year to get my degree. And after three years, four years in total, one year full-time and three part-time, I ended up getting uh, my, my degree from Oxford. So it was a, uh, it was a juggling act. Uh, the year when I was at Oxford and commuting to Italy twice a week was just incredible because I was flying all night long and I was playing basketball in a very competitive Italian league, and yet I had to keep my schoolwork up. You know, as a, as a student athlete on a university, it's very integrated. You know, I mean, when you have games, everybody knows it, and, uh, you know, your academics and, and schoolwork, your schoolwork and your sports are, you know, are more aligned. When you're living in two different, you know, countries, UK and uh, Italy, and you're doing two separate activities. One could care less about the other. It was uh, a very, very challenging experience because I went to Italy. You know, Oxford could care less about that. And when I was in Italy, didn't want me. You know, they want me for basketball, not not education. So it was a stark example of how difficult it can be to juggle those things being sort of the intellectual type and then going back into the NBA and kind of that transition. 
you know, I went to the NBA um, for the Buffalo Braves. You know, it's always a struggle your your rookie year. Um, and then I was traded to the Knicks the second year, and I hear I'm playing with Bill Bradley and Phil Jackson, all these legends, Earl Monroe, Walt Frazier. And Bill, you know, here we are, two road scholars, the only two road scholars in pro basketball were on the same team. So, of course, Phil was uh, a very intelligent player, uh, uh, you know, and Earl Monroe and uh, and uh, all the guys that they had. Walt Frazier were very, it was a very quality group of players. And so it was, but they were older and they were more experienced. Spencer Haywood, um, Butch Beard, we had a lot of players, like Dean Nemager, we had a lot of great players on that team. Jim McMillan, um, and uh, and it was a, an experience um, playing there. Bob Back Backett, who was traded with me from the uh, from Buffalo to New York, so we had a lot of talent, but we weren't as good as we 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 were just really weren't that good a team. And so then I ended up getting traded to Atlanta. And playing for Ted Turner, and that was a real thrill to play with Ted for six years, because Ted was doing some things in so many exciting areas and in television that it was just a thrill to be with him. And uh, I also got very involved in business with I was with Ted. Uh, Ted's chief financial officer left, and we 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 started to invest in different ventures. I was one of the earliest investors in cellular telephones. Um, when you know cellular was just starting, so I, I that experience in Atlanta was very, very fundamental for me to learn how to be a business person and to see opportunities. But I really enjoyed playing for Ted Turner. It was a, a thrill. And then one day I went to Ted and said, "Ted, I want to, uh, I want to go play in Washington because I want to run for Congress." I had bought a house up there near Annapolis. And uh, lo and behold, Ted ends up trading me to Washington so I could run for Congress. I ended up playing in Washington for three years. Uh, I announced for Congress. Uh, before I started my third year with the Washington Bullets, I announced before the season, and I played a whole NBA season as a candidate for Congress, uh, which has never been done and probably will never be done again. Um, and... Um, I ended up winning uh, by a very close margin, the closest race in the country that year. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, it all worked out. What made you decide that you wanted to be a politician? Well, again, what happened when I was playing with the Knicks, Bill had retired the next year, and he sat out a year, and then he ran for the Senate. Matter of fact, I did a fundraiser for him in Washington when he ran. And he actually pulled it off. He became the United States Senator. So I said, well, yeah, that's, if he can do it, I can do it. And uh, that's kind of how that all occurred. Very funny. In your book, uh, there's a picture of uh, you and Bradley and Jim Bunning uh, and Jack Kemp, what you were called the, uh, what was it, the Jock uh, Caucus? Yeah, the Jock Caucus. They had Mo Udall, basketball player, uh Jack Kemp, you know, great football player. Uh, they had Jim Bunny, you know, of course, world class baseball player. Uh, myself, Bradley. So it was a. It was called. We had a lot of. Uh, we had a lot of athletes uh, in Congress at that time who were, you know, we ended up getting along very well, working together. I worked with Kemp on a lot of things, even though he's a Republican. Uh, you know, different time, different era. One of the things that you talk about in your book and that you, you accomplished while you were there was the Athletes' Right to Know Act. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Is that still in effect? Absolutely. Well, at the time, you know, when you were going to go to a school, whether you're an athlete or not, you couldn't determine the graduation rates of how that institution was doing, either student-athletes or otherwise. And so... We thought as a consumer item, schools ought to disclose that. <laughs> and we put that bill up, Bill Bradley, myself, and a Congressman Ed Towns. <laughs> and the NCAA fought it a great deal. And, uh, you know, it's now it's like it's so standard uh, that, you know, it's just hard to imagine college sports without graduation rates. 
uh, being disclosed. They now go into APR and all those kinds of derivations, but the original idea of disclosing graduation rates was, was uh, fundamental to that bill, and I recall the NCAA fought that. They were opposed to it, which I guess is uh, pretty standard for organizations that are uh, that are uh, you know very you know they're they're hard to move. They're quite bureaucratic, and uh, so they oppose that. We passed it in the law, and it's really been a very fundamental part of college sports. Tell us a little bit about your new role at Lead One. I guess it's not new anymore which may put you sort of on the more on the NCAA side than you were back when you were a congressman and trying to get them to be more transparent. Uh, talk about Lead One and what your role is there. Well, Lead One, I was recruited to Lead One by Jack Swarbrick, who took the organization. It had been created in 1986. It was very sleepy. And he wanted to see, you know, it rejuvenated and be a, a sort of a voice for the ADs and also kind of a thought leader for the ADs. And um, that's really uh, what we have become. Uh, we work with the NCAA quite a bit. We also, you know, we don't always agree with them. Uh, so um, I don't, you know, we don't pull our punches when it comes to being speaking truthful, truth, truth, uh, about, you know, issues that affect college sports. But we work on every issue that is significant. NIL, transfers, academics, uh, sports betting, uh, you name it, we work on it. And, and uh, you know, a lot of times the ADs feel like their voice is not often heard and, you know, it's a, you have a very fragmented environment in college sports. You have conferences, you have the NCAA, and it's oftentimes hard to get anything done uh, because of the whole fragmented structure. It's not like you have a commissioner in the NFL that can, you know, pretty well, or a commissioner in the NBA that can, can, can really push the levers of power. College sports doesn't have that. And it's really hard to, to, it's like moving a big ocean liner. It's very hard, very slow, laborious. And we're here, we're here to try to move that process along if we can. Is your organization comprised mainly of uh, Division One athletic directors? Uh, That's it. No, it's only the FBS, the Football Bowl Subdivision. It's 130 right now. It's going to go up and a couple of schools uh, join uh, next year, or this year, later this year, but, um, but we are the FBS schools. Within that 130, uh, you have schools like Alabama that have, you know, a, a surplus of dollars, and you may have another school that's operating in a deficit. How do you man? What is the role of an athletic director in 2022? Well, there is tremendous uh, stratification between, you know, the richest of schools and the, the ones that are less resources. I, I mean, I think the discrepancy is somewhere in the FBS. I think our biggest school is around $200 million, Our smallest are around 2025. And, you know, that's hard to compete. Uh, those schools are aspirational. They want to see if they can compete. And occasionally they do. Occasionally, you have a Cincinnati breakout or a Gonzaga breakout in basketball or, or whatever. But there's no question that the more resources you have, the, the, the better it is. Uh, and the other thing that's tricky is that a lot of our smaller resource schools get their money from not only the schools, but student fees, sort of external financing. While our biggest schools get most of their money from television contracts, so that creates some differences in stratification as well. But it is there's no question it's a motley crew of schools, and it's hard to keep them on uh, the same plane. They, they all are aspirational when it comes to big time football. Uh, that's what defines those 130 FBS schools, but. There's no question that resources play a big part in who, who succeeds and who doesn't. In the last couple of months, uh, we've kind of had a, even a split among 
the those schools in terms of uh, the playoff expansion in college football. Uh, how do you manage, you know, when you have a meeting and you have the people from the Big Ten uh, versus the SEC how to, how, and, and those kind of relationships? Well, I will say that, you know, we had our annual meeting in September, and, you know, there are there are hard feelings, you know, particularly about conference realignment and so forth. Um, it's not easy. It's a strange relationship. ADs are friendly with each other. They're competitors, and yet they have to work together uh, in conferences and the like. So it's, um, you know, it's not unlike being in politics. You know, sometimes you're opposed to someone. Sometimes you're you're working with them. Um, that's not that's not unusual. I do think though that uh, the rising amount of commercialism has made it tricky because. You know, schools are always looking to go to where it's the, the, the best financial environment for not only their students, athletes, but the school as well. And and that creates a lot of tension. There's no question about it. And so we've, you know, we've had meetings. Sometimes it's really good because what happens is rarely do schools have a chance to talk about issues across conferences. They may, you know, the SEC talks about their issues in their conference and the ACC and theirs and Big Ten and theirs, but rarely do they have a platform where they can talk across conferences. And I think that is really one of the, um, I think one of the high points of we want is that we try to facilitate those conversations. I'm going to get to some of the, the topics, you know, like transfers and cost of attendance and paying college athletes, but all of those are now in the athletic director's world, uh, and and a lot of them are new. So, what changes in skill sets do those do athletic directors need to have now, as opposed to when you were a student athlete? Well, you know the quality of credentials for ADs is just really remarkable. Many of them are lawyers. Some have finance degrees. They all have fundraising, marketing skills. They got to understand the digital world we live in. Um, it's it is a uh, a much more complicated enterprise than it was when I was in school. Um, and I think the um, you know I think as a result the requisite um, needs or or requirements to be an AD have risen. Uh, some of them are you know very. Uh, they remind me of, you know, they have to have political skills, they have to have good external skills, but then they have to be able to, to run a, a business, which today, if it's a $200 million business, Texas A&M, the, the magnitude of that business is much greater than a normal $200 million business. It's got a multiplier effect. It's probably in the billions of dollars, so... They are true CEOs of, of major enterprises, and as I said, the requirements have risen as uh, as the jobs have become more complicated. When you have your annual meeting, or when one of the ADs picks up the phone and calls you, what is the number one issue that they have that they see on their horizon that they want to deal with? Uh, it depends, but you know, generally, you know, you know macro level, I think the NIL has been a big issue this year. I think it's just you know, how do you not pull your hair out with all the the changes going on. I mean, basically the NCAA kind of left it to the schools and the states and uh, it was a very deregulated environment and so everybody is kind of uh, chasing their own own thing, and that creates a lot of challenges. You don't want to be left behind. You certainly want to be competitive. So I would say NIL is the more immediate one. But longer term, I think it's the whole employment issue. Uh, you know, the evolution that we're that we're heading towards towards full employment rights for student athletes. I think that is that's a, a major concern because that would really really change the model dramatically. And, um, you know, it's not a surprise. Uh, you know, back 30 years ago when I was in Congress, I said, look, you know, we, we had our first million-dollar coach then. I said, if you don't slow the coaching 
escalation of salaries, you expect to have a million-dollar player. And um, that's what we have right now. And so I think that's the longer issue. That's the longer-term issue that is of concern. When you were in Congress, you talked about the, the Right to Know Act, and you got some pushback from the NCAA. Uh, it seems with NIL and cost of attendance, uh, we, we still have the same pushback uh, from the powers that be. Uh, do you think that the NCA is always a one step behind? And as I look at the NIL, which has been in effect since, what, July of, of this year, uh, it hasn't, or last year, it, has, it didn't turn the world upside down. Uh, is NIL a bigger problem than, uh, or a smaller problem than what we anticipated? Well, to the first part of your question, you know, any organization that's so membership-driven is is very. It's going to be reactive. There's no question about that. It's hard for them to be offensive. Um, that's just sort of the how the uh, how the whole suit is made here. But um, I would say the um, the NIL issue. I think the verdict's out. Um, you know, originally the idea about NIL was that you, you were going to have it based on some market value and that it was going to not be used for recruiting um, and that it wasn't going to be used for pay-for-play. And I think all those three things have really uh, have, you know, maybe maybe obviously less, less, less in effect today. Those, the three points of concern are really pretty much been thrown out the window. And and now you have a much, much more deregulated environment. And people, you really don't know what's going to happen, uh, A, on the recruiting side, B, on the, on the pay-for-play side, or, you know, just the whole, uh, the whole idea that if you're on a team, you may get a check. That probably could be quite sizable, um, and probably irrespective of your market value as an athlete, um, that seems to be heading down that way. The collectives and how they're being created, there's a lot of uh, innovation going on. But the traditional model of college sports is kind of being left in the in the, in the trash can here. Can you put the Humpty Dumpty back together again, uh, or in some fashion? That's going to be the question that remains, and whether the college sports just look like a mirror image of the NFL and the NBA. Uh, those are questions that a lot of our ADs ask. You mentioned that you know, as the coaching salaries rise, uh, and that seems to have risen much more than any other salaries. Although the ADs are not doing bad these days, in general, is the problem that the college model or the amateur model just does not work when television and dollars are so prevalent in college athletics. I mean, you know, if the Big Ten and the Big 12 are writing you know, millions of dollars of checks for their TV rights, uh, can you expect the student athlete to not want to share in that largesse? No, that's yeah. obvious. Should we have a discussion about changing the model? Maybe the model just doesn't work in the in the twenty first century. Well, I mean, that's the question that I think has to be asked: is what does the collegiate model look like? Because the collegiate model has always been based on the primacy that these kids are going to go get an education. College sports has always been a tug of war between commercial forces and educational forces. I mean. And oftentimes the commercial forces have prevailed. And, and, and that's what you see happening right now. Um, you know, it's a big question about higher education. And, I mean, do you want mirror images of the NFL and NBA on your campuses, sports betting and all the other things that go on with that? Or is there another model? The commercial cat got out of the bag when we started paying coaches the extraordinary sums that we pay, and um, the uh, half a billion dollars in, in, in buyout money that's going to coaches that have been fired. Um, we just, uh, you know, the coach at Maryland just left uh, with a multi-million dollar buyout, and um, that's endemic across the system. And we call that kind of dead money. And 
what we see happening on the other hand are sports, other sports being cut, like Olympic sports and so forth. And I think as a nation, we ought to be expanding opportunities, not diminishing them. And when a lot goes to a few and many do not benefit, I think it, it raises societal issues that we have to look at. You know, um, I, I don't want to get you know too much in the weeds here, but, you know, I think that most of our ADs would like to see more of a higher-ed model where kids go to school and they provide broad-based opportunities. Yes, they can have NIL. Yes, Title IX is complied with. Uh, and their kids are there to get an education, as opposed to looking like the NBA and the NFL. But having said that, I, I'm sure a couple, a few of our ADs are, are okay with the NFL NBA model. So it's going to be a debate probably for years to come as to what that model should look like. Um, and, you know, uh, we hope that lead one can have a voice in that. It is interesting that uh, you, you mentioned when you were at, at uh, Oxford that, you know, Oxford didn't really care about your playing basketball in Italy, and Italy didn't really care about your Oxford, sort of the, uh, the same dynamic. And as I look at college athletics, and I'm a big basketball fan and football fan, but we're playing games on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights. I don't understand how kids can go to college and study if they're flying across the nation to play in a basketball game. Well, I mean, those are core values that have sometimes been observed in the breach. There's no question about it. I mean, you know, we talk the game of primacy of education, and we don't always we don't always abide by it. You know, I know my own model University of Maryland is I play in Nebraska. They get home at 5 o'clock in the morning, and it's pretty hard to be a student under those environments. So what happens in those circumstances is that, you know, money – Money talks, and, um, you know, look, the Big Ten puts a big check out there and to those schools, and, you know, they they expect them to schedule accordingly, uh, even though some of that may be hurting the core principles of, of education and academics that, that, you know, everybody espouses. So those are the conflicts that are there. Um, but it's getting harder and harder. You know, when, when a student athlete becomes an employee, who's the boss? Is it the person writing the check, or is it their, is it their school teachers? It's their, you know, professors. Uh, those are some of the conflicts that are coming down the road. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the, the big issues now and, and changes that we've seen is the college transfer rule. Uh, what, are you, what are your ADs saying about that? Seems to well, be a wild, wild I mean, west now, much well, they understood that it had to come to some sort of uh, compromise because, you know, a number of schools, a number of teams could transfer immediately, and then some of the core sports couldn't, um, like basketball, football, baseball. And so they had to harmonize all that. And um, But it's resulted, the confluence of NIL and the transfer portal has resulted in, you know, kids jumping in the portal to see, you know, what's, what's the bigger and better deal. And um, that is uh, that's disconcerting for a lot of coaches. And um, I think what they're calling for are some windows, so that you know you just don't have such a, an open environment of transfers. But maybe it's limited to windows, which probably makes some sense. Because um, the roster management today is almost impossible for uh, coaches and athletic directors not only compounded by the transfer portal, but compounded by the requirements of Title IX, you know, that you've got to keep uh, equitable distribution in your in your female and male sports. And so <clears throat> it becomes much harder to do that when your roster is spinning like it is right now. You talk about Title IX and, and the effectiveness of that uh, and sort of the difficulties in roster management, but also the difficulties in, in – uh, Balancing out the football program, uh, which has could have 90 players on the scholarship, as opposed to there's no women's sport that has that kind of uh, problem. Do you see some conflict in, in, in or, or, or look at Title IX and how it applies to athletics? No, I don't. I really think Title IX, here we are coming in 50th anniversary. We're planning a big uh, event, Washington, June 23rd, which is the 50th anniversary. 
I think Tyler and I started the strongest forces in college sports. I mean, and it's only getting stronger. I think we have 121 members of Congress who are women at the highest ever. And um, I think that, that Title IX is only going to be stronger in the future. And, and it's going to, uh, I think, uh, be an issue for possibly some of these collectives. You know, where if the school's too closely aligned with the collective, I'm sure there could be some Title IX claims there. And uh, it just, I mean, Title IX has done amazing things for uh, for women uh, and girls in sports, uh, but it is a it is a complicating factor when you're an athletic director how to balance all those equities. Uh, no, no, I, I'm a firm supporter of Title IX. I think it has it has changed the landscape of college athletics. Uh, to provide more equal opportunities. But uh, speaking of equal opportunities on the playing field, uh, how about in the athletic director's uh, ranks? Uh, we do not have a lot of uh, women athletic directors or African-American athletic directors. How do you address that in, in, in your group? We had a, uh, a diversity inclusion uh, cast group, and we worked very hard on that. We made some recommendations on how to improve diversity in athletic departments, um, it, it is an issue. I mean, uh, we saw Richard Lapchick's report the other day, and still, you know, college sports lags, lags behind what it should be doing. Um, it's not just on the hiring side. Um, you know, I, I also look at, across the country, um, creating opportunities for disadvantaged kids in the sports arena. I mean, it's becoming more and more expensive when you grow up in a disadvantaged neighborhood to, be, to even play play basketball or play football. I mean, it, it costs money. It's no longer school-based as much as it used to be, and it's very discriminatory. And yet, you know, <laughs> we ought to, as college sports, we ought to be a, a beacon of hope and that we ought to be creating lots of opportunities scholarship-wise underprivileged kids, and we ought to be bringing much more uh, inclusion into our hiring practices. So it's a double challenge, and um, much needs to be done. And, um, you know, as I said, we we spent a lot of time on this uh, uh, diversity uh, and inclusion task force, uh, and we are going to continue to do that. We have a fellowship of uh, a diversity fellowship. We do a lot of programs to try to get uh, very attractive, diverse candidates ready for the chair. And we're going to continue to do that because we think it's a priority. I, I, I worked a little bit with, with your group on, on your task force report, which I thought was a very good report. Uh, but I also, as I look at the NFL where I spent some time, you know, the Rooney Rule uh, has a good basis in what it's trying to accomplish. The problem is that the people implementing the rule aren't doing their jobs. Uh, do you have any criticism, and I know this is a hard question to ask you, of the of the college presidents and the way they're looking at their hires? How, how can we get their mindset to change so that they open it up to a more diverse group? Well, I think it also gets to board of, board of directors, board of regents, board of trustees, uh, they have to be demanding of diversity in their ranks. And I, and I would say most are. I served on, you know, the University of Maryland uh, board. I served on the Naval Academy board. <laughs> I, I do think they are, uh, they, 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 they make this very intentional. So, but, I mean, those are places that uh, clearly there needs to be some emphasis on, on raising those, raising that bar, if you will, uh, at the trustee level, and certainly at the president's level. I mean, uh, the uh, but I do also see progress being made. Uh, it's slow, but I see more diversity in the ranks of, of just the people I deal with uh, in our AD group than there was the case when I came aboard a few years ago. So uh, it's not as fast as it should be, and. Clearly, the programs that we're doing and others are doing are 
are, are, are very important towards you know, catalyzing that kind of change. As I said, I worked a little bit with Sean Frazier, who was your chair of that group, uh, and some of the people on your staff. And uh, I do think that you, you guys are, are moving in the right direction. I also agree that it's not moving as fast as uh, it should or, or it needs to be. So one of the things, and Tom, you probably have a very unique perspective on this, having been a congressman and now leading uh, lead one. Uh, and when we talk about NIL, the, the sort of thing that you hear most is that we need federal legislation on this. Uh, and, you know, I'm not sure we can get legislation on anything that's bipartisan and is agreed upon in these days and times. Uh, do you think federal legislation is necessary for, for NIL, or are we finding out that it's working on its own? I think federal legislation will be probably needed for a much broader set of issues down the road, NIL being one of them. But it's all being integrated in what the student-athlete model is going to look like. And, you know, whether NIL is going to be largely unregulated, uh, pay-for-play is going to be allowed, recruiting inducements are going to be allowed, um, you know, non-market value payments are going to be allowed. Is that the system, or is there going to have to be and then you go further than that, uh, you know, employment rights, collective bargaining. There's a whole host of issues that um, that I think, uh, you know, just the whole arms race in college sports. Uh, does, you know, do policymakers want college sports to look like the NFL and the NBA? Some do, some don't. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot more issues in the mix than just a pure and simple NIL bill. Although, you know, if, I know the Republicans in the Congress, that's exactly what they want. You know, Senator Moran's bill or Congressman Gonzalez's bill, they're pretty straightforward on that. <laughs> and there's a chance, obviously, if the politics of Washington changes, that something very much more streamlined could get done. But I do think it's really hard, as you said, to get things done through Congress. And, and Congress reacts to crises. I mean, that's just just how they are. There's so many issues on the plate of an average member of Congress that the things that sometimes uh, personally are the ones that are really the issues on fire. And so uh, we could very well see college sports have a lot of issues, more, much more issues, than just NIL down the road. So I uh, I think that, that that's probably not, we're not going to see anything till at the earliest, late 2023, uh, just because you got, you know, a war going on, you got an election coming up, and uh, by then, terrain could be very different. And so that's what I'm saying. You could have courts that have classified uh, student-athletes as employees, you could have, you know, pretty much overt pay-for-play uh, NIL arrangements. And I think, I think at that point in time, I think that may be, there may be many more issues on Congress's college sports agenda than just NIL. What I've argued with some of my friends in your industry is that what we keep trying to do is put a Band-Aid over a, over a fissure. Uh, instead of really, my view is uh, is that we need to put everything on the table and sort of look at how do we rework a system that now works in this period of time, as opposed to trying to say, well, we got to deal with NIL or we got to deal with. I mean, we need to look at the whole system at one and see how can we make it better. And I'm not sure we can wait if we want college athletics to exist for it to be on fire, for us to make the well, changes that um, we need. My own personal experience with this, you know, I played in the 72 Olympics, and that was just a catastrophic Olympics, uh, terrorist event. Our basketball game was crazy. Uh, and then Congress came back after that. It was a mess. The AU, NCAA, and all of them were fighting, and <clears throat> they formed a, a presidential commission, and then they cleaned up uh, the Olympics through the Amateur Sports Act. <clears throat> Sometimes... You know, policymakers have to get involved to rationalize you know, big enterprises. 
they're important to the country. And um, it's really hard for college sports to do this itself because, you know, it's fragmented. You've got 32 conferences in Division One. You've got NCAA. You've got the college football player. It's hard. It's hard to to uh, self-reform. And um, so we just might have to let this play out a little bit. I'm not surprised by that. Uh, I think it was maybe 30 years ago I said that what would cause Congress to get involved? Well, one of them would be if schools, athletic programs went bankrupt. You know, if you had a number of insolvencies, you know, it's not out of the question by any means. Another one would be sports gambling scandals. Um, you know, another one would be sort of a multi-school scandal. It could be NIL. It could be, you know, kind of payola. Uh, payola has always been one of those scandals uh, in the record industry, whatever, that's caused you know, heartburn in Washington. There are issues that can come down the pike that uh, galvanize sort of the national attention. And, and, you know, just the same way the NCAA was formed when Teddy Roosevelt had pulled everybody in the White House and say, you got to stop this violence killing football players. And so <clears throat> that's sort of how it works. Um, and I wish we could say that there's another plan, but sometimes it just takes that kind of uh, kind of national focus to get anything done. You see a big issue on the horizon that uh, may be an igniter? As you look at what's going on, I mean, you just listed several, several things that are right in the middle of what's going on right now. Do you see anything in the future that's going to add to that to those issues or create new well, ones? I think the, uh, the move to employment status could really be significant. I mean, schools could lose their charitable status. Conferences could lose that as well. Um you lose a lot. You can lose a lot of philanthropy. You can lose student fees. You can lose institutional support. You lose billions of dollars in sports, college sports. Um, certainly would affect smaller schools and less resource schools the most. And then you know you've got you've got sports betting, which is pretty much ephemeral across the country. And uh, you know, it's not to say. I mean, it's very sophisticated and. Unlikely that you could have a crisis there, but you never know. I mean, it happens all the time in Europe, soccer and so forth. So uh, we're not immune. So, I mean, there's a lot of issues that I uh, I could see percolating and causing some angst. But, uh, you know, you can't try to predict the future. You know, you, don't. It, it, you know, it's also you can't you can't discount the national environment. I mean. Who knows what the next three months are going to bring to this country? Uh, uh, we are in the middle of a crisis internationally, and you know, all these things have impact on our all of our institutions. And so, who who knows? I mean, there's so many issues that you can't really. It's hard to predict. It's a very tough question. And so, if you look in you know ten years from now, what do you think you'd like to see college athletics? Where do you where would you like to see college athletics? I would like to see college athletics uh, a couple things. One is I'd like to see it um, stay true to its original mission of creating opportunities for thousands of thousands of kids across the country, second to the GI Bill. I think that's extraordinarily important. Um, you know, obviously, I would like to see broader opportunities. You know, I always tell people, you know, we have a half a million kids go through NCAA college sports. Well, you know, wouldn't it be great if it was a million? <clears throat> um, and, and many of those opportunities would go to kids that don't have opportunities. Um, but I would like to uh, talk about, you know, broad-based opportunities. Uh, I think that's extremely important. It's important for our country. It's important for our Olympics. important for the fitness of our, of our, of our land. I mean, you know, a stark statistic most people don't realize is that 70% of young kids today, 17 and 18 years old, are unfit for the military. They could not get into the military because of their state of fitness. <clears throat> and, you know, 
big things happen in nations when you can't field an army. Uh, militarily, uh, self-defense, defense issues are what oftentimes drive change. <clears throat> and uh, the fact that our kids are so out of shape and really unable to serve is really disconcerting to me. And I think colleges have a role to play in that, <clears throat> not only as an inspirational source, but also just an opportunity for kids to get an education and to to learn to, to play and to learn to play sport. And uh, so, you know, the model of college sports has to get rid of some of the excesses. There's no question about it. I mean, you know, when you pay a half a, half a billion dollars out for coaches that are no longer coaching, I think your system is maybe not, not as balanced as it should be. And um, so all those things have to be looked at. Uh, more opportunities. Uh, you know, you still want to hold true to the primacy of education. You want to, you know, help your Olympic effort. You want to uh, make sure that, uh, you know, the system is, is really connected to higher education and, and not just sort of, uh, as I said, mere images of pros. And, uh, and so all those are big issues. I mean, I don't have all the, I don't have the answers for them, but I, if I had have a crystal ball, I'd like to see uh, a college system really uh, modernize and, yes, give these kids uh, more opportunities. And certainly NIL is, has, has been one of those opportunities, but I still think it has to be under some framework, even the pros you know, have frameworks around NIL for pro athletes. I mean, they, and that's part of collective bargaining and so forth. So I don't know what the new model is going to look like, but it'll, it should be better for all student athletes. It should be better. It should be better for more student athletes. I mean, I'll start there. Better for all and better for more. Our listeners will understand that having you in one of the leadership roles as we go forward, gives us a chance to provide those opportunities and that. So, Tom, I really want to thank you uh, for joining us today. Your experiences uh, from from an athlete to a legislator to now a leader in college athletics is very important. And I thank you very much for taking the time, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy that. Uh, and we welcome your suggestions to our listeners on our guests and topics uh, that you would like to see us address. You can provide your feedback by coming to the Apple podcast and going to the ratings and review sections for our podcast and tell us what your thoughts are. And if your listeners are on Stitcher, go to stitcher.com. And again, we thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Bob. Look forward to seeing you on the trail. Okay, thank, thank you. <laughs>